from Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. New revelations about heavily armed protesters on January 6th and a series of extreme decisions by the far-right Supreme Court prompt one historian's bleak prognosis for the United States. The progressive movement, based upon a blip from the 1950s to the late 1960s when you had the court of Earl Warren, overestimated the reliance on the U.S. Supreme Court to vindicate rights. And as demonstrations for reproductive rights continue, I speak to journalist Jacqueline Lukman about the connection between those endangered rights and the legacy of slavery in the U.S. What they're espousing is the white supremacist doctrine of domination and suppression of women. That's really what this is, because when you take away a woman's right to regulate her own reproduction, you take away her ability to be equal to men. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, more than 180 people were arrested Thursday in an act of mass civil disobedience near the Supreme Court, protesting the court's recent ruling overturning Roe v. Wade, the landmark decision that guaranteed national abortion rights for nearly 50 years in the United States. Among those arrested was Representative Judy Chu of California, whose proposed law, the Women's Health Protection Act, would codify Roe. But after passing the House, the bill has been stymied in the Senate. Chu spoke to ACT TV. I want to make sure every woman in every state has access to an abortion as the way it was for the past 50 years. And I have my bill, the Women's Health Protection Act, which would do exactly that. It passed out of the House, but it's stuck in the Senate. We just need two votes to end the filibuster and vote the Women's Health Protection Act in. That's how close we are. Demonstrators are calling on elected officials, including President Biden, to take bold action to either end the Senate filibuster, which requires 60 votes for passage of legislation, or to create a special carve out for abortion rights. Other proposals include declaring a health emergency and providing federal facilities in states that are restricting or banning abortion access. Also on Thursday, demonstrations continued outside the homes of Supreme Court Justice Roberts and Kavanaugh with chants of hey, hey, ho, ho, Christian fascists got to go. Unrelated to new Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson being sworn in on Thursday, other demonstrations were organized as the Supreme Court also ruled that the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, does not have the authority to restrict emissions from power plants, severely limiting efforts to combat greenhouse gas emissions and the climate catastrophe. This decision, with national reverberations, was made only two days after a Michigan Supreme Court ruled that former state officials, including former Governor Rick Snyder, were not indicted properly in the Flint water scandal that killed at least a dozen people and poisoned 100,000 more. Flint Rising, a project aimed to help those harmed, said, quote, this leaves no one criminally responsible for poisoning 100,000 people in one of the largest public health disasters in this nation's history, end quote. 
the burst of street protests here in D.C. against the Supreme Court's repeal of Roe are expected to continue into the week of July 4th, with some rallies being planned on the July 4th holiday under the banner F the 4th. More voices from Thursday's mass protests after headlines. And now for more on the Supreme Court and international updates, I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston and author of more than 40 books, including his latest, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, notwithstanding this, you know, bombshell testimony this week about what went on at the White House and in the presidential limo on January 6th, you know, all of that's really great for the tabloids. But in terms of the seriousness of what's happening here in in Washington, I can't look away from the Supreme Court. You know, there's just more and more extremist rulings by this far right court. You know, even before they overturned the landmark Roe v. Wade decision, we, we discussed about how they decided that people cannot sue an, a police officer for not informing them of their right to remain silent and other protections on the, the Miranda statute. And they ruled against a man who wanted to sue a U.S. Border Patrol agent for coming onto his property without a warrant and for brutality. These cases have come so fast and furious that it's, it's difficult for me to keep track of. But they have also broken down this division between the church and state, allowing public funding of religious schools, allowing public prayer in public schools. And, you know, and of course, that's a Christian prayer. <laughs> and they struck down New York's 100 year old law, restricting people walking around uh, in public with concealed guns. And this week, they ruled that the executive branch, the Environmental Protection Agency, which came into existence during my lifetime to protect us from, you know, the depredations of corporations just polluting, using the earth for a garbage can. They ruled that the EPA doesn't have any authority to keep these polluting power plants like a coal fired power plant from polluting the air and emitting these greenhouse gases that we know are warming the planet and making the prognosis for humanity ever more bleak. So these are extreme rulings. And I know you have a long view of history and a long view of what these rulings mean for not only this country, but the world, given the, the influence of the U.S. And certainly we should place more emphasis as well on the Dobbs case, the uh, anti-choice, anti-abortion case coming out of Mississippi, mm-hmm. a restatement in the starkest terms of misogyny and patriarchy with Justice Clarence Thomas promising that next on the chopping block will be contraception and LGBTQ rights. He did not mention, as many commentators have suggested, interracial marriage for whatever reason. Oh, you know the reason. (laughs) 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 He is in an interracial marriage and his wife is also the subject of inquiry around January 6th. So, but that's another point. So, but go ahead. (laughs) That that was considered uh, to be sarcasm. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Real (laughs) professorial sarcasm. (laughs) Okay. But in any case, uh, I hate to break the news, but I think we're in a pre-fascist era. 
And I think that an indicator to watch will be a spike in political assassinations and attempted political assassinations. And I think that's the context in which we should view the testimony by Cassidy Hutchinson just this past week before the January 6th committee, where she underscored how many of the insurrectionists were armed. The only thing missing from her testimony was that the 45th U.S. president did not have stashed off stage a white horse that he would ride down Pennsylvania Avenue uh, leading all the protesters. But in any case, I think that the underlying issue with regard to the Supreme Court uh, question is that the progressive movement be based upon a blip from the 1950s to the late 1960s when you had the court of Earl Warren overestimated the reliance on the U.S. Supreme Court to vindicate rights. Now, we know how that happened. It happened because when the United States was faced with the dilemma in the 1950s of being an apartheid state at the same time that African and Caribbean nations were surging to independence and being appealed to by the socialist camp, Washington was stuck because Congress was dominated by conservatives and Mossback reactionaries, not to mention a similar occupant on the White House, speaking of Dwight David Eisenhower. And so the U.S. Supreme Court, under the California politician Earl Warren, stepped in to fill the vacuum. But a telling indicator, as should have been recognized, was that in the previous decade, the 1940s, he had presided over the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II for no reason other than their ancestry, which should have been an indication that he was not the most sturdy tribune of civil liberties and civil rights. But I think that that entry onto center stage of the Warren Court led to illusions about the court as a savior, and it also led to illusions about the U.S. Constitution. It led to illusions about the Bill of Rights. Uh, Even today, you have progressive people who see the formation of the U.S. Bill of Rights as a great leap forward for humanity, even though it includes the Second Amendment, which authorizes militias to repress Native American and enslaved African rebellions. And even though it also included a First Amendment that guarantees supposedly freedom of religion, but speaking in a material sense, that was a way to bridge the gulf stemming from Europe that divided Protestants from Catholics, from Jewish Americans, and helping to forge them into a so-called white block so they could better confront enslaved Africans and the Native American peoples. And so now, particularly with the football coach praying at the 50-yard line case and the case coming out of Maine with regard to Christian schools, you see the surge in the ideology of this pre-fascist era, which is white Christian nationalism. And it's also striking to note that despite all of these dangers and troubling signs, with regard to the surge in fascist ideology, it seems that the progressive movement in this country has been caught flat-footed. 
And speaking of the impact of the Warren Court, if you read Samuel Alito's opinion in the Dobbs case and his references to so-called originalist thinking, meaning adhering to only what was in the original Constitution, I mean, his thinking lays open to challenging the Warren Court's landmark civil rights case, the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education case, which outlawed segregation in public schools. And I know I sent you a screenshot of a social media post by Texas Senator John Cornyn. Of course, it was somebody from Texas where Cornyn suggested just that, you know, after the Dobbs decision that the court do something with Brown versus Board of Education. So that's the kind of world we're living in. And that's the kind of situation we're living in right now. As you know, on July 4th, the farce of July, as we call it, uh, myself and Professor Greg Carr of Howard University will be discussing these issues on WPFW for two hours in order to unpack this crisis. So at the same time that we are confronting these uh, proliferating crises here at home, this week there was a meeting of the so-called G7 and also uh announcements by NATO, which are uh, taking center stage because of the ongoing war in Ukraine. Um, Why don't you give us an update on your thoughts on these? Well, the other shoe has dropped. Uh, NATO has made it explicit that the People's Republic of China is in the crosshairs. Recall that attending this NATO meeting in Spain were leaders of Japan and South Korea, We fully expect Australia and New Zealand to become part, at least in an unofficial sense, uh, of this uh, so-called North Atlantic Treaty Organization that now is trying to expand its tentacles across the planet. You also saw that Finland and Sweden are overthrowing neutrality and plan to join NATO. We see that NATO is increasing its forces bordering Russia by several orders of magnitude. We see as well that correspondingly, an alternative bloc has arisen that includes not only China and Russia, but the BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, uh, India, China, South Africa, uh, not to mention the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which includes Russia and China in the leadership, but also includes Iran and India. And we see a further intended applicants to join the BRICS, including Argentina. Now, uh, I dare say that I expect rifts to arise in the North Atlantic bloc, not least because of the rise in energy costs, the rise in food costs, as a result of the rise of the left in France in particular. It would not surprise me at all if sooner rather than later, uh, France peels away even more from this North Atlantic bloc, which President Macron previously that called NATO a brain dead, which will have knock-on effects in Germany uh, as well. But the question that we need to ponder is where is the U.S. peace movement as this drumbeat for war intensifies? Well, I don't know. Are you asking me? (laughs) Asking a question. We've certainly discussed the splits in the U.S. left around the, the war in Ukraine and I suppose this is just another example of the left being caught flat-footed. Well, I'm afraid you're right, and we'll take up this issue even in more detail once again on the farce of July, the 4th of July, Monday, 
from 10 to 12 noon on WPFW with Professor Greg Carr of Howard University. Okay, and so that's on the DC station, uh, 89.3 FM, and also WPFWFM.org for the folks not in the DC area who will be listening to this. Well, thank you. I know that we will also continue this discussion, certainly on our monthly episode called The F Word on Fascism. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. And finally, in culture and media, until August 7th, the exhibit The Bridge That Carried Us Over is on display at American University's Katzen Arts Center. The exhibit chronicles the African River Road community and the descendants of Moses African Cemetery in Bethesda, Maryland. Organizers say the collection of community heirlooms, firsthand oral histories, and funerary objects explore the mechanisms by which the transfer of intergenerational wealth, land, and historical memory have been denied to the African diaspora in the United States. It offers an in-depth look at the historic Black River Road community, which thrived two miles from American University, from emancipation through violent displacement in the mid-20th century. More information is on the webpage for the American University Museum under 2022 exhibits. Also a collection of the journalism of the late Robert Perry, the investigative journalist who founded Consortium News in 1995, has just been published. American Dispatches, a Robert Perry reader, just published by iUniverse, documents how the deterioration of the U.S. media's commitment to providing an honest accounting of current events has enabled corruption and wrongdoing at the highest levels of government. Hard-hitting stories that can be found in the reader include mafia influence in state and local governments, the full story of the Reagan administration's illegal use of arms sales to Iran to fund the Nicaraguan Contras in the 1980s, how the U.S. government looked the other way as drug traffickers imported cocaine into the United States, and the government's development of sophisticated propaganda techniques to influence American public opinion. And the On the Ground family extends our sincere condolences to our colleague and longtime environmental justice activist, Michelle Roberts, on the death of her father, Leslie R. Roberts Sr., who died June 23rd at his home in Wilmington, Delaware. He was 87 years old. And DC's art community is mourning the passing of Russell Dale Simmons, a painter who served as president of Black Artists of DC. Also mourning Sam Gilliam, acclaimed abstract painter who died at his home in Northwest D.C. on June 25th. He was 88 years old. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. We want justice.
trigger laws put so many women in danger and I am also tired of women having to sell their most tragic story in order to qualify for health care. Abortion is health care, uh, women's health is important and nobody should have to justify it. This is a decision between a birthing person and their provider and nobody else has a stake in this. Thank you. 
Whether we're out here or not, whether you're not here or not, this is the, for everybody's rights. Whether you believe in it or not, it's for everybody's rights. And we have to show people that this is this important, that we would come out here and stand up for these rights because this is what this country is about. We won't stand down. We won't stand down. We won't go back. We won't go back. We won't be separated. We won't be separated. And we won't back down. We won't back down. Every city. And those were voices and sounds from the Bands Off Our Bodies sit-down protest held June 30th, 2022, near the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C. 181 people were arrested, including Representative Judy Chu, Democrat of California, the Reverend William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, and radio host and activist Mark A. Thompson. Protesters called on elected officials, including President Biden, to take bold action to either end the Senate filibuster, which requires 60 votes for passage of legislation, or to create a special carve out for abortion rights so that legislation, including the Women's Health Protection Act, can be passed to codify Roe after the Supreme Court overturned the landmark 1973 decision that guaranteed national abortion rights for nearly 50 years in the United States. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show. If you have not already subscribed at Patreon, you can do so for as little as $3 a month or all at once at $33 for the whole year. And I know that the show is worth more than that to you. If you like the show, if you love the show, if you regularly check it out, if you rely on it, if, you know, it's a part of your soundtrack in any kind of way, please support. Go to patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. And I would very much appreciate your support. And it would mean so much to us at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show. Or you can go to the show website, which you might go to anyway, if you reach the blog that way and you click on the donate now button or the, um, 
support donate button and you can see all ways to give. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Iverm. Well, dozens of people were arrested on Thursday as part of the Bands Off Our Bodies movement here in D.C., and they were protesting the Supreme Court's recent ruling, which strikes down Roe v. Wade, which has been the law of the land 50 years guaranteeing a woman's constitutional right to end a pregnancy. And to discuss this issue very much in the news today is Jacqueline Lukman, editor-in-chief of Lukman Nation and also co-host of By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik. I should say welcome back to the show, Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. It's good to be back, unfortunately, for these reasons. But <laughs> As I think about our coverage of this issue and listening to your coverage also, I've thought about how this issue has been almost cast as a, a white woman's issue that concerns mainly, you know, suburban women and their daughters. And I think that this time around, I've seen more black women, more women of color speaking up and really casting the issue, not only in terms of our issues today in the context of black lives and how black lives matter, but also that long historical view But just talking about the current events, I want to play some audio uh, for you of a rally that we covered here on the ground. This is Lori Bertram Roberts of the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund speaking at a rally in front of the Supreme Court last December, but also speaking back to black men in the audience who were aligned with the pro-life movement, who were heckling her as she was speaking. We have folks who get abortion funding from us and have to wait six months to get an IUD from the health department. So when these Republicans want to talk about why people have so many abortions, and when y'all out here shouting about black genocide, also, f*** you. Because I don't see y'all out here fighting for better access to birth control. I don't see y'all out here fighting for better access to tannin. Shut the f*** up. I don't see y'all out here fighting for better access to diapers. I don't see y'all how you're fighting for better access to housing. I don't never see none of y'all out here at protests for better access to clean water in my city. I don't see y'all having acting in a bowl for better water for them neither. So every time I hear an abortion ban coming down, but you're not doing nothing that would help prevent abortion, and you're not doing nothing to help cultivate families, I call bull because in my state, we're the poorest state. We have the worst education system. We have no Medicaid expansion. We have, we have the highest gonorrhea and syphilis rates. We have one of the highest HIV rates. Alabama's the same. And it's one of the most dangerous places for black women to give birth. So miss me with your concern for black children. Cause y'all not concerned with black children once they're here. Y'all don't care about our babies when they shot in the streets. Y'all don't care about our babies when they locked up in jail. Y'all don't care about our babies when they not educated. So hush, shh, I don't want to hear it. Okay, 
So that's Lori Bertram Roberts of the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund speaking. And so I want to just kind of get you to react to that and add in your own perspectives that you've been expressing in terms of this issue. I don't know what else to say that could add to what was said in that clip. She's absolutely right. And it is really bothersome to hear some Black men really supporting this decision because, you know, Margaret Sanger was racist and she was a eugenicist and because of the Black genocide of abortion. When, you know, first of all, regardless of Margaret Sanger's particular views, women have been controlling our reproduction since the beginning of time, since humanity has existed. So the idea that Margaret Sanger came up with out of her, you know, fevered racist thinking, the idea of abortion and unleashed it upon black women to create a genocide in the black community, that is ridiculous. Terminating pregnancies, women controlling their reproduction, women deciding when they will get pregnant and give birth. We've been doing that forever. So that just completely destroys the whole abortion connected to the racist Margaret Sanger argument. Then the argument about, you know, abortion is a black genocide. Most of the black women in this country who become pregnant carry their babies to term. Most black women have babies. Of the black women who do not choose to carry their babies to term, they are so small in number compared to the black women who have their babies, that the idea of a black genocide is just ignorant. It is absolutely ridiculous. Furthermore, the people who are concerned about black genocide through abortion are not talking about, they're they're not fighting against the death penalty. They're not fighting against inadequate health care. Because, I mean, if these people want all babies to be born, if they want all women to carry through with these pregnancies, then we need to address the higher prevalence of maternal mortality among Black women, Black women who die in childbirth. These folks who are talking about a Black genocide aren't talking about the higher rate of Black women who die in childbirth. And most of those women are poor. So the people who are screaming about a black genocide that is created because of, or or that's committed because of abortion, they're not fighting against the issues that actually are a threat to the life of black people, which include inadequate health care that threatens the lives of black mothers, particularly if they're poor, as well as all of the systemic and environmental issues that make life much more difficult and unhealthy for black children who are poor, as well as poor Latinx and indigenous people. I would love for these abortion is black genocide folks to marshal their anger at how the system kills our people and stop blaming black women for killing uh, our people, because that's, that's really the underlying issue there. It is an expression of misogyny. It's like a hatred of black women that some folks express through blaming black women for killing off the black race 
abortion, while these very same folks are not doing anything themselves to address the real life, everyday societal structural issues that shorten Black life and that take Black life in this country. You know, your comments made me think about so many different things. Just the the patriarchal nature of these types of comments and views, in addition to the just outright misogyny. So when you think about, for example, Herschel Walker, who's running for, I guess, is it the Senate? Um, yeah, he's running for the Senate in, in Georgia and he's come out, you know, against abortion and, and many of the things about, you know, that would support women's right to choose. Yet he's apparently been caught up in many paternity suits where he has children out of wedlock, you know, and not supporting those children. So, so I'm thinking about that. And then also, and I don't, I guess that's out of a religious mode or something, his appeal to the evangelical movement. But on the side, he's, you know, living this hypocrisy. And then I thought about, you know, the larger issue of black people, indigenous people dying out here and what's contributed to our genocide. You know, you, you think about, you know, the Yemen, you think about uh, all the, the children who are subjected to this inhumane conditions due to imperialism around the globe. And, you know, we kind of expanded beyond the borders of the United States. These are real big issues around black genocide. Right. That, that has nothing to do with a black woman or a girl in the United States, you know, needing to end a, a single pregnancy. Exactly. And, and ultimately, you know, when I think about the, the religious arguments, I don't like to argue with people about whatever they believe in their faith. I, I am a Christian. I am a radical socialist Christian. So I do not believe the same things that or the same interpretation of the gospel that these folks pushing this very repressive and hateful policy that was just passed by the Supreme Court and many others that are to come. I don't believe that the Bible says the things that they believe that it does. So we don't interpret the gospel in the same way. But I I don't like to argue with people about what they believe in regard to their faith, because your faith is a personal thing. It is how you are supposed to conduct yourself in relation to others around you. That's it. That's the beginning and the end of faith and its proper place in the existence of the world. It is not, at least the way I read and interpret and understand the Bible and the gospels, my job as a Christian is not to tell other people how to live. My job as a Christian is to use the examples that Jesus Christ gave in how to treat other people And my job is to treat other people the way Jesus treated other people. And one of the things the Bible tells us to do is to fight for justice on behalf of the oppressed. That's actually in the book. And these folks who are talking about they are doing God's will, they are espousing Christian values. They are protecting uh, the unborn, as the Bible said. Well, listen. God made it very clear that people of faith are supposed to pool our resources together and redistribute everything that we have to everyone in the community so that no one goes without. I don't see these so-called Christians pushing these, uh, you know, this abortion ban and the rest of these very conservative pieces of legislation that are coming. They're not pushing that. They're certainly not pushing for an expansion of TANF 
relief for families. They're not pushing for affordable housing to make sure that mothers can have a, a stable, affordable place to live. They're not right. pushing for universal health care to ensure that mothers have the adequate health care they need. They're not pushing for a subsidized uh, child care for working mothers. They're not pushing for free pre-K for children to give them all a good head start. These folks are not espousing the actual gospel. What they're espousing is the white supremacist doctrine of domination and suppression of women. That's really what this is, because when you take away a woman's right to regulate her own reproduction, you take away her ability to be equal to men in society. Why is that? Because when women give birth in most societies, what do they have to do? They have to take it's the women who take care of the children. It's the women who have to stay at home and care for the home and the children. And if women are not able to control their reproduction, then they are pregnant all the time if they are in a committed relationship or a marriage. And pretty soon marriage is the only thing that will be recognized by the Supreme Court. So when we see in some societies where women do not have equal rights under the law, and they are kept at home under the law. You see that they have large families. They have a lot of children. That is the kind of thing that robs women of the ability to be equal to men. And that is what these people want. They want men, particularly white men, because you know, for, for the black men who believe that they have some commonality with those folks, they're not on your side, bruh. They they don't they don't like you. So their fight is not your fight. They want to oppress all of us. What they want is for women to not be able, certain women not to not be able to have equality with men. And and they're they're basically just flat out saying it without saying the words. Right. Yeah, you have so much in there that definitely advances our conversation about this. I mean, when you started out talking about faith and that reminded me of the fact that there's real concern about the Supreme Court blurring the line more between church and state, that they are infusing a lot of these decisions with religion or their attitudes towards religion and what Christianity teaches about life and, and the law. So, for example, they had a recent decision allowing a football coach to pray, uh, do a mass prayer after games. And I think I heard you and your producer talking about that on, on your show about how in some states like Texas, that can be a real intimidating factor for someone who's not a Christian, you know, who wants to be a, a, a member of a football team. If part of that membership or participation means, for example, you know, participating in this group prayer afterward, you know, maybe you won't get as favorite treatment by that coach if he sees you as not being, you know, a praying Christian with him on the field, right? And then when you were talking about the white supremacist nature of this, of course, we had the representative Mary Miller of Illinois do what she called a slip up, a slip of the tongue, <laughs> saying that, you know, this 
<laughs> the Supreme Court ruling was, you know, a victory for white life. Right. <laughs> and right. we always suspect that that a lot of this this push to end abortion rights has to do with the shrinking white population. The fact that you have comments made by the right that, you know, there aren't enough white babies to adopt and how like I remember hearing the Mississippi governor. Hutchinson, you know, in an interview on CNN talking about how, you know, the next phase of this is to provide more adoption services for these mothers, like, for example, in in the state, you know, and, you know, you heard Lori Bertram saying earlier how, you know, it's, it's the worst state in the world for to have a baby. Mm-hmm. They even recently ended access to uh, postpartum care, I think, for women on Medicaid. And so this is uh, obviously just a real catastrophe for, for most women in this country. But I wanted to mention the opinion piece written by Michelle Goodwin. She's a chancellor's professor of law at the University of California, Irvine. And her opinion piece in the New York Times, I think it was June 26th. It must have been, yes, yeah, Sunday, June 26th. And she she starts the piece this way. I thought it was really important in terms of bringing in an historical aspect to this that I've tried to bring forward from an activist frame or a journalist frame to some of my, um, you know, young comrades here in D.C. It's titled No Justice Alito. Reproductive justice is in the Constitution. And this is how she starts her essay. Black women's sexual subordination and forced pregnancies were foundational to slavery. If cotton was euphemistically king, black women's wealth maximizing forced reproduction was queen. Ending the forced sexual reproductive servitude of black girls and women was a critical part of the passage of the 13th and 14th Amendments. The overturning of Roe v. Wade reveals the Supreme Court's neglectful reading of the amendments that abolished slavery and guaranteed all people equal protection under the law. It means the erasure of black women from the Constitution. Mandated forced or compulsory pregnancy contravenes enumerated rights in the Constitution, namely the 13th Amendment's prohibition against involuntary servitude and protection of bodily autonomy, as well as the 14th Amendment's defense of privacy and freedom. The Supreme Court demonstrates a selective and opportunistic interpretation of the Constitution and legal history which ignores the intent of the 13th and 14th Amendments, especially as related to black women's bodily autonomy, liberty and privacy, which extended beyond freeing them from labor and cotton fields to shielding them from rape and forced reproduction. The horrors inflicted on black women during slavery, especially sexual violations and forced pregnancies, have been all but wiped from cultural and legal memory. Ultimately, this failure deserves all women. So later in the essay, Professor Goodwin gives the example of Sir Jonah Truth giving that speech, you know, the ain't I woman speech. And, right. and somewhere in this speech, she talks about how she had given birth to 13 children and had all of them ripped from her arms. Mm-hmm. And so this is, a, I think, a, a way of demonstrating that erasure that that Professor Goodwin talks about that the real lived history and experience of black women is not really brought up in the context of this abortion fight. Right. But it's a very real part of it. 
Absolutely. I mean, first of all, the rank hypocrisy of this country, anyone in this country arguing for, you know, they're defending the sanctity of life of the unborn when this is the very same country that did exactly what, you know, you just described, forced, not just forced births on young African girls as young as 13, but had them systematically raped in order to do it in order to create a new crop, if you will, of slaves after the uh, transatlantic slave trade was made illegal. This is the same country that very recently uh, performed uh, uh, illegal hysterectomies on uh, immigrants uh, at the border. And this is the very same country that performed illegal uh, hysterectomies and tubal ligations on indigenous women without their consent and knowledge through the Indian Health Service, I believe, up until the late 70s. So the country that has made it clear that it is unconcerned about not just women who are not white, but their children now turns around and would have us believe that all of a sudden they are concerned about life in general. As Laurie said, I call BS. That's garbage. And the fact that the oppression of Black women in particular in this issue, particularly working class and poor Black women, has been overshadowed by this being called a or framed as a suburban white woman's issue. Listen, suburban white women and a lot of them who are Christians and who go to church, will always be able to find a doctor and will always be able to afford to take care of the embarrassing little problem of them getting pregnant outside of their marriage or having uh, having a pregnancy that they don't want to carry the term late in their life or their daughter getting pregnant and they don't want her career derailed. They'll always be able to find abortion services. They'll always be able to afford it. But abortion has been, and other reproductive services have always been difficult, out of reach, in fact, for many working class and poor people, particularly poor Black women. So this issue is is not just, you know, a suburban white women's issue. It's not a Christian issue. It's not a Muslim issue. This is an issue that will impact working class and poor black, indigenous and Latinx women the most and the hardest. And the very same people, again, pushing these policies are doing absolutely nothing to ensure that policies are passed to ensure that the mothers who give birth to these babies now that they have to they are being forced to give birth, that the mothers have adequate health care and are able to live a decent quality of life. And they're not fighting to pass legislation to make sure that the babies live in a society that guarantees them a decent quality of life. So this isn't even an issue about caring about life. This is really an issue that was created by the moral majority under Jerry Falwell to get religious conservatives who previously were not talking about abortion at all to become politicized so they could 
do exactly what we're seeing now, take over the country. Right. And unfortunately, I I think I'm rapidly running out of time. So I want to get in a couple of questions about the political sphere that we live in here in D.C. And there's the sphere of activism. There are, you know, many of our comrades definitely in the streets calling out not only this backward Supreme Court decision and not just the Republicans either. Right. And the these, you know, right wing uh, uh, justices on the Supreme Court, but also the Democrats, because there have been times when they've had the House, the Senate and the White House, and they've never passed the you know federal legislation that would override any Supreme Court overturning of Roe and actually make it law. You know, that women could have this right permanently. Right. So on the one hand, Biden has come out talking about possible carve out of the filibuster to pass the Women's you know, Reproductive Health you know, Justice Act. I hope I'm getting the name right or or to get rid of the filibuster. We, but we know they've been talking about that for a year now uh, for voting rights and all these other things that haven't been passed. On the other hand, we have uh, activists calling for emergency legislation to be passed, you know, things that Biden has within his power to do without uh, Congress. So uh, as we wrap up, you know, what do you what do you see going forward in terms of what people can do, what we can do as activists, as organizers, as as people who want to get the right information out to people? And then finally, you know, there's this I keep hearing from a lot of people this finger wagging about, oh, this is because you didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I've, I've heard it. I've even heard it on Pacifica stations, Pacifica shows where the people who were, I think, in a way, saving the issue for Hillary to run on, you know, and it didn't work, are now coming back and saying, oh, you see, if if Hillary had been elected, you know, we wouldn't have had this happen, you know, not looking at, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg for not resigning, you know, when she knew she was very ill, you know, not looking at the fact that the very unfriendly to life policies of Hillary Clinton. (laughs) So anyway, let's end on that. Yeah. I, I mean, I place this squarely on the Democrats' shoulders because there were plenty of times, as you said, throughout the, uh, if we just go back to Obama, he had eight years to codify Roe versus Wade. He said he would do it when he campaigned. He said he, it would be a priority. And, and then at when, least for those first two years, he right. had that super majority. He had a filibuster proof. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, majority. He, right. Exactly. He campaigned on make codifying Roe versus Wade a priority and he did not do it. He turned around and said when he got in office, it's not a priority now. Nancy Pelosi said the same thing. It's not a priority now. Joe Biden now is about to nominate an anti-abortion lawyer to a federal judgeship, a lifetime appointment to a federal judgeship. So I think we, as movement people, we do what we've always done, which is what we're doing on this show. We point out that while the overt and obvious enemy of the people are the Republicans, the covert and undercover enemy of the people are the Democratic Party. And we have to hold both equally accountable and not 
succumb to this pressure from folks with this, you know, if, if you had voted for Hillary Clinton, this wouldn't have happened and, and respond with facts. Hillary Clinton chose Tim Kaine uh, as, her, as her running mate. He was anti-abortion. So either we are going to fight this fight and connect all of our struggles together to defeat this duopoly and the decrepit system that props it up. But what I do know is that we will have to continue to struggle because that is the only way we are going to win. All right. Well, that's a a great note to leave this conversation I've been speaking to Jacqueline Lukman, editor-in-chief of Lukman Nation and co-host of By Any Means Necessary on Sputnik Radio. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you so much, Esther. And that's it for today's show. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Averam, and on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Special thanks to Professor Gerald Horn and to journalist Jacqueline Lukman for being my guest today. And thank you for listening. In addition to communicating with us on our website, you can let us know you like the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Patreon.com at On The Ground Show, all of which have a protest sign with green lettering that says On The Ground. Or I also link to every show on my Instagram page, which is Esther underscore Ivarum, And that's I-V like Victor, E-R-E-M like Mary. The music we played this hour was from the Bands Off Our Bodies sit-down demonstration in Washington, D.C. on June 30th, 2022. And our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. Peace.